I'm going to finish up uh, a series that I've been doing here on judgment. We, we had a series on love and the knowledge of good and evil, and then uh, the last several times I've, I've spoken, we've talked about judgment. And I'm going to finish this, uh, tie up some loose ends here this morning with this. I was going to get to this last week, but God kind of took it in a different angle, uh, and that was fun. But today is serious teaching, training time, all right? What we've seen so far is this, in a nutshell. What it is to be a Christian, most fundamentally, most essentially, is to be a person who believes in and receives and is being transformed by God's Calvary type of love for them and is learning to apply that Calvary type of love to themselves and to to, to all others. That is the center of the center. Christianity is about receiving, being transformed by, and dispensing God's outrageous love. And that's at the core of everything. And everything else we do is a variation of that one thing. Everything else we're to become is a variation of that one thing. We're to grow in holiness, but that's simply an aspect of of growing in love. We're to grow in in God's righteousness and grow in service, but those are just different ways of saying we're to grow in in Christ's love. We're to become more Christ-like in in our thinking and in our speaking and in our behaving. But that's simply a a way of saying that we're to be uh, uh, displaying God's love in our thinking and our speaking and our behaving. Uh, This is the center of the center. We've seen that Paul said that um, if we get this down, become outrageously loving people to all people people at all times, in all situations, in all circumstances, no ifs, ands, or buts. If we get that down, everything else we need to get down is going to be gotten down. But if we don't get this down, there's nothing else worth getting down. This is the all or nothing. Love is the all or nothing of, of the Christian life. It's that simple. That's why over and over again the Bible teaches us to live in love, to clothe ourselves with love, to put on love and never take it off. Uh, In all things, Paul says, love. We've also seen that the core obstacle to becoming a loving, uh, Christ-like person, and this is surprising because this is not the way Christians usually think about it, but the core obstacle is that we eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis chapter 3, at the center of the garden was a a, a provision, which was eternal life, and a prohibition, which is God's way of saying, don't try to be like me. And the way that God wants to be like God and have us not be like God is concerns the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is about judgment. We eat from what we think we know, the good we know and the evil that, that we know, and applying it to other people. And what we've seen is that throughout the New Testament, you find over and over again the prohibition not to judge. God can judge and love at the same time. But we can't. Judgment is about separating ourselves from other people, being above them, uh, thinking that we're somehow better than them. And love is the opposite of that. It's about embracing people no matter where they are at. We are incapable of loving and judging at the same time. And that is why... That is why uh, at, the, at the, core, the core of the whole uh, biblical message is this prohibition against judgment. Now, I want to tie up some loose ends here, and the way I want to do it is by, by showing a paradox. There's a paradox about this in Scripture, a conundrum, an apparent contradiction. And I want to explain this, and it's a way of tying up some loose ends. On the one hand, I'll do a one on the one hand and on the other hand. On the one hand, we find a... Uh, that the Bible teaches, we've seen this several times in this series, teaches unequivocally, uncompromisingly, forcefully, uh, that we are not to judge. Matthew chapter 7, for example, Jesus says, don't judge. 
lest you be judged. If you don't want to be judged, then don't judge. Romans 2, Paul says, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. There's no excuse for it. Never. James chapter 4, there's one lawgiver and judge who's able to save and destroy. Who then are you to be judging uh, another? Do you think you're God? Are you that one judge? No. Romans 14.4, Paul says, Who are you to pass judgment on another? 14.10, Why do you pass judgment on another? 14.13, Let us therefore no longer pass judgment on one another. Are you getting the point? Over and over and over again, uh, the Bible teaches this. 1 Corinthians 4, But with me it is a very small thing, Paul says, that I should be judged by you or by any human court. You want to judge me? Fine. I don't care. He says, I don't even judge myself. Uh, That's an amazing thing. It's a good word for those of us in this congregation right now who maybe have the accuser on your back and, and you tend to condemn yourself. Paul says, you know what, I, I, I'm so uh, uh, lame as a judge, I don't even judge myself. I believe what God says about me more than I believe what I say about me. I don't even judge myself. And really, there's so much freedom that comes when we make God more credible than our own inner voice. So that what Jesus says about us is the final word, and He says in Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. That's freedom. Paul says, I don't even judge myself. Okay, so here's how much you're not supposed to judge. Don't even judge yourself. John 8 and John chapter 12, Jesus says, I don't judge. There's one who's able to judge. There's one who will judge at the end of time. He's perfectly capable of doing that on his own. Doesn't need my help. I've come, he says, not to judge the world, but to save the world. To love the world. So we find over and over again this repeated insistence in the New Testament not to judge. And if you're looking for an explanation for why it is that the church has more of a reputation for being angry and being the moral police of our society rather than being outrageously loving, I submit to you it's because we haven't taken with full seriousness uh, this teaching. If you're looking for an explanation for why the body of Christ today doesn't have tax collectors and prostitutes beating down the doors because they want to hang around with us because they experience such love from us, even though they did with Jesus, they, wherever Jesus went, there was tax collectors and prostitutes and uh, gluttons and, and the rest hanging around wherever he was, they wanted to be. And it was a scandal to the religious authorities. The religious people were saying, how can this so-called Messiah hang out with these drunkards and prostitutes and tax collectors? What's the deal here? It was a scandal. But wherever Jesus went, they, they were there. They just wanted to be around the guy. Before they changed, they wanted to be around the guy. In fact, it was the love that he displayed, which is what motivated them to change. But the church today, if we're honest, and we've got to be honest, doesn't really have that magnetic quality to the contemporary tax collectors and prostitutes, does it? If we're honest, we'd have to say that on the whole, tax collectors and prostitutes and just your average sinners in the world tend to view the church more like the tax collectors and prostitutes viewed the Pharisees in the first century. They're not beating down the doors. And if you're looking for an explanation for that, I submit to you it's because we haven't really internalized the centrality of love And we haven't taken with full seriousness the strong, repeated, unequivocal, uncompromising teaching of the New Testament against judgment. The church as a whole, I submit to you, has evidenced more of a spirit of Phariseeism than it has the outrageous loving spirit of Jesus. Which is why the world responds differently to it. And it needs to change. Amen. It needs to change. There's so much work to be done because there's so much harm that has to be reversed. Uh, there are walls of suspicion and mistrust put up there. I, 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 I think we should, the church as a whole should just say, okay, you know what, for the next decade, let, let's pretty much just shut up and just start serving. Let's just start serving. Let's start loving and win back a little bit of credibility so people want to hang out with us. Uh, you know, it, it's, uh, 
And I'm not saying, okay, shut up. But I am saying we, 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 we've got we've to have actions where our words are. Okay, so there's this teaching. Uh, it, it is just strong. It is just so strong um, that uh, we, we've got to internalize this. I, the church has been at its worst at the place where it's most important to be at our best. In a lot of contexts, not only is judgment not really talked about as a sin, it is, it is uh, the second most frequently mentioned sin in the New Testament. The first is unbelief. The second is judgment. How come we don't have any Christians going on moral crusades against judgmentalism? <laughs> we go on crusades about every other kind of sin. Uh, you know, that might be a crusade I'd actually possibly join. It's the one crusade where you might have a little bit of biblical precedent for it, because if there's anything that Jesus crusaded about, it was against this judgmentalism. But instead we pick out other kind of, 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 of sins that we think we're safe from, ignore our own sins, and then become moral police, and now we're doing the very things the Bible says we're not supposed to do. We get a reputation for being angry and, and trying to moral police people instead of being outrageously loving towards people, and, and, and it is the opposite of what the Lord wants for us. That's the one hand. But there's another hand. And if we're going to look at the whole counsel of Scripture, we've got to look at both hands, right? It doesn't do any good just to pick out a verse and say, I like that one, therefore it's the Word of God, I'm going to ignore the rest. We need the whole counsel of Scripture. Uh, even when it seems to me to be paradoxical, when, it, when it's hard to fit together. Sometimes the, the most profound truths you get of the Word of God are when you let things stand in tension with one another and chew on them and wrestle with them a bit. This is what we want to do. On the first hand, we have this strong teaching against judgment. But on the other hand, you find verses that seem to allow for and even command judgment. So let's look at these. A couple of them. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7. Don't cast your pearls before swine. This is the first thing out of his mouth after he just told us not to judge anybody. And now he says, don't cast your pearls before swine. Now he's not calling anyone swine here. Uh, this is a first century proverb. But he is saying this. Don't, don't be spending an inordinate, an inordinate amount of time on people who aren't receptive to what you're saying. Move along. But that presupposes a kind of judgment, doesn't it? You have to make a decision here. So what is it, Jesus? Are we supposed to judge or not judge? Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, Why do you not, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? So apparently this is the kind of judgment we're supposed to be given. John chapter 5, he says, I can do nothing on my own. Jesus says this. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Didn't he just tell us that he, he didn't judge at all? John chapter 7. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. <laughs> well, you just said, don't judge. If we don't want to be judged, we're not supposed to judge. And now you're saying, if you do judge, judge with the right judgment. Yeah. What is it? Come on. Cognitive dissonance. <laughs> First, First Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, for what have I to do with judging those outside? Man, I wish, I wish this part of the verse would just land. Paul's saying, don't worry about those non-believers. You know, God will take care of them. He can handle the world on his own. You know, we shouldn't be concerned about that. Don't go out trying to moral police them. But what bothers me is the second phrase. Is it not those who are inside that you are to judge? Oh, so apparently we're supposed to be judging one another. Well, look at you. <laughs> What's with this? Didn't he just say, back in Romans 14, don't judge your neighbor, why are you judging your neighbor, stop judging your neighbor, all that. Now he says, aren't we supposed to judge our neighbor? What's the deal here? First <sighs> Corinthians 6.3, do you not know that we are to judge the angels to say nothing of ordinary matters? 
What he's, what's going on here is that the Corinthians are having fights with one another and so they're taking each other to court and Paul, the pastor of this church, is just pulling his hair out. He's saying, look at you guys. You are rulers in training. You're going to reign with Christ. You're going to judge the angels. Don't you think you should be able to handle this on your own? But it's, it's, it's saying that you're supposed to judge these matters on your own. Ephesians chapter 4, speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Speaking the truth. Apparently, we're supposed to speak the truth to one another, which involves some confrontation. And through that, as we speak the truth to one another, that we all grow up into the head. So are we supposed to be confronting each other with our perspectives on things in order to help each other grow? Doesn't that involve a kind of judgment? Hebrews chapter 5. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose faculties have been trained by practice to distinguish good and evil. Okay, so we're supposed to distinguish good and evil. Okay, we're supposed to be mature in distinguishing good and evil, but we're not supposed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How do you do that? Okay, do you see this conundrum here? Are you all really, really puzzled and... So I guess the Bible just contradicts itself. Let's go home. <laughs> no, you know, see, someone could say that. Okay, the Bible just contradicts itself. You know, who knows what we're going to believe? Uh, but, but look, at, let's think a little bit here. I mean, apart from the whole thing of inspiration, do you think Jesus was really so dull that he would contradict himself flatly in the span of one sentence? Don't judge one another. Don't cast pearls before swine. And mean by that, judge them. I don't think so. Do you think Paul was really so dim-witted that he forgot that he said don't judge anybody and then in another context turns around and says, oh, you're supposed to judge those inside the church? There's something else going on here. There's something else going on here and I think it's a very important teaching actually. The beginning of understanding the solution, the resolution of this apparent paradox is this. The word for judgment as we've seen uh, several weeks ago is krenao. And the word, we get the word critic from it, and it literally means to separate. To separate or to distinguish. A critic is someone who distinguishes things. What is wise from what is stupid, a good film from a bad film, a good piece of literature from a bad piece of literature. That, that's discernment. That's distinguishing. That, that's a kind of judgment. It separates things, okay? The, the root of the word means to separate. Now, I submit to you that we don't have a contradiction in the Bible. What we do have is, is different kinds of separation, different kinds of judgment that are going on. The one kind of judgment that is allowed and even encouraged is a judgment uh, that, that distinguishes things, distinguishes impacts, distinguishes activities. Uh, it, it distinguishes uh, what is wise from what is stupid, what is good from what is bad, what is righteous from what is evil, and so on. That's a distinction. I want to call that discernment. Just for clarity's sake, you discern something. You're separating things. The kind of separation that is prohibited in the Bible, because it cuts to the core of what we're created to do and created to be in the world, is a judgment that separates you from another person. Okay, You, you criticize them. And now you set, you set yourself above them and have an attitude towards them. That I want to call judgment. The one is about separating or distinguishing this from that. The other is a separation between me and you. The first is good. The second is bad. Let me flesh it out a little bit more. Discernment is about, as I said, distinguishing things, separating things, uh, saying this is, this is helpful, that is harmful, and things of that sort. It's also about just separating preferences. I like that and I don't like that. That's a kind of a judgment, but it's not a bad kind. You're just separating things. Whereas judgment is about separating you from people. Uh, you put yourself above another, you criticize them. Discernment is about assessing impact or assessing preferences. 
You, you, you just observe the impact that something has on someone else or on something else. This has this kind of impact. Or it's about just assessing preferences. I like that kind of address. I don't like that kind of address. Okay, you're, you're distinguishing things. That's not bad. Whereas judgment is about assessing worth. You attach a value to a person. You say, they are this kind of a person. They are a hypocrite. They are loose. They are immoral. They are evil. They are whatever. You see, it's drawing a conclusion about their, their inherent worth. Discernment is, is uh, uh, done in, in the, the guise of saying this feels like or this has this kind of impact. Whereas judgment is a you are statement. We either think it or speak it, but it's a you are. You are, and then there's a label that follows that. Discernment is about what we can know. We human beings can know very little. We're very myopic in our perspective of reality. And there's very few things we can know. But one of the things we can know is how things impact us and how they appear to impact others. We can know that. Discernment is about what we can know. Judgment is about what we can't know. What we can't know is people's hearts. We don't even know our own hearts, it says in Jeremiah 17. We don't know the innermost being of a person. We can't, we can't ferret out for ourselves how much a person, what they do and what they say and what they wear, etc., etc., is a result of their free choice versus social upbringing versus genes versus influence of spirits or whatever. We're not omniscient. You see, the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the knowledge that is appropriate to an omniscient being who knows all the variables. When we try to steal that knowledge, we act like we are omniscient. And we draw conclusions about people that we really don't know. We see less than the tip of an iceberg of a person's life. But we, we, we jump from, the, from what appears to be the case to what we think is the case. It's, it, it's very, very different. One of the tragic things that happens is this. And I see Christians doing this all the time. We make people the enemy. We forget that our enemy, our, our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers and rulers and authority, authorities in dark places, right? It's not about flesh and blood. If you can see it and if it moves and it's, if it's flesh, that's not the enemy. Rather, the people are the, is the, are the battlefield that we're fighting for. They're the ones that we're supposed to be winning. Sadly, because we get involved in judgment, we declare war on the, on, on the people we're supposed to be winning. Instead of having an outrageous love towards them, fighting principalities and powers to free these people from that oppression, we end up drawing conclusions about them and ostracizing them away from ourselves. Discernment is compatible with love. To discern whether you like this and don't like this, or this has this impact and that has that impact, is not to say anything about the person's inherent worth. Rather, in discernment, if you're doing it from a Christian perspective, you ascribe unsurpassable worth to the person. Because one of the few things you know about them, and the single most important thing that you know about them, is that Jesus died for them and therefore they have unsurpassable worth. And our job is to ascribe unsurpassable worth to them. Which doesn't mean that you like their dress. But you understand that their worth isn't wrapped up in their dress or their behavior. You see? So discernment is compatible with, 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 uh, with love. Judgment is not. Because love is about ascribing unsurpassable worth to a person, and judgment is, up, is about applying a negative worth to a person. You are this. And that's why judgment blocks the flow of God's love into us and out of us. And it's uh, the root of the foundational structural element of sin. It is the knowledge of good and evil. Discernment in appropriate context is helpful. Because you are seeing the person's inherent worth, 
and uh, yet maybe seeing how their behavior or something they're, they're about is not lining up with that worth. And so if you're in on their life, you can speak a word that can maybe help them realize their worth and get out of the behavior. Judgment is never helpful. It's never productive. I've yet to see a person who's actually helped by someone coming along and just judging them. The person who judges is helpful to them because they're getting life from thinking they're superior. But it, what it rather does is it tends to lock people into the very thing that you're judging from them. That's why it's so satanic. It's diabolical. It doesn't, it doesn't help at all. Discernment, on the other hand, it, when, when, when you use discernment while ascribing unsurpassable worth to a person, what it tends to do is create compassion. Because you're reminded of their unsurpassable worth as a person who's made in the image of God and a person for whom Jesus died. And if you see negative stuff around them, it creates compassion, which is the appropriate attitude to have towards all people. Jesus looked at the crowds and said that he was moved with compassion. Whereas judgment tends to evoke a feeling of revulsion, of anger, of hostility towards the person. They're evil. And now they're the object of what you're angry about. Do you see the difference here? Let me flesh it out with a couple of examples. Several months ago, I guess it was, downtown St. Paul went out to eat with some people in the afternoon, and as I came out of the restaurant and was going to my car, I passed a lady on the sidewalk, and she was wearing an outfit. Now, all women wear an outfit, but this was an outfit. It was an outfit. Not much of one, mind you, but it was an outfit. And, um, I, you know, immediately it's the kind of outfit with it where, where any normal male with some hormones would go, boom, what, what was that? You know, you've you got to fight a double take here. You gotta, I did fight it. I'm righteous and holy. But it, it's kind of like a, whoa, thank you, thank you. I, I'm, I'm very righteous, yes. Uh, no, but, but it's like you notice this. Hey, you can't help but notice it. It was, it was an outfit, you know, flips could kill kind of thing. Now, here's the thing. Discernment would say, that outfit has an impact. And uh, uh, discernment might say, I don't like that impact. Discernment might say, I wonder if she knows the impact that that can possibly have on people. Uh, discernment might say, I don't know if it's wise to wear that outfit in certain areas. See, uh, and if I'm, as I ascribe unsurpassable worth to her, reminding myself that this is a precious child of God, I'm moved with compassion because maybe I'll wonder why would a person who has who's got this much value feel the need to wear that kind of outfit? Now, even as I'm doing that, see, discernment can be humble. It doesn't, need, it doesn't get life from its conclusion. So as I'm thinking that, I'm also aware of the fact that I'm an old fogey. I'm 45 years old. This, this gal is probably 20 years old. And maybe it has a totally different meaning to her than it would have to me. So I'm aware of that. Still, you discern. And I, I, I don't feel guilty about discerning. Judgment would go further. And judgment would draw a conclusion about her. And see, that I don't know about her heart, about her character, about her motives, about what she's trying to do. Look at that woman. Well, she's just trying to get looks. She's just trying. She's probably sleeps with everything that moves. She's a loose woman. She's a this. She's a that. Who knows what? You see? And, and now, instead of just having a kind of a, I don't like that dress. I don't know if it's wise to wear that dress. I would never let my daughters wear that dress. Uh, instead of that, now it, there's an anger towards the person themselves. You see? And I'm no longer ascribing unsurpassable worth to her. Another example. We were over in London two weeks ago, my wife and I, and at the end of one of the revival meetings, we went down to uh, uh, the town of Battle. It's where they fought the Battle of Hastings in England. And um, uh, it's, it's a cool town. It's so old. We have nothing like this in the States, where you can go to buildings that are, you know, 1,400 years old. And, you know, there's a castle there. And so we were kind of walking around the town late at night after the revival. Winky Prattney, who was the other guest speaker, was there, and, and our wives and some other people. And we're just enjoying walking around the town. And we decided to go into this English pub. 
Uh, we've never been in an English pub, and, and they're, 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 they're unique. They've got character. They're low ceilings. And, and so we went in there to just kind of check it out. Now, you walk into this English pub, and, uh, uh, you know, you scan the place like you always do. Like, oh, you know, what's this about? And there's a gal at the bar who is talking to a friend, uh, but, her, but, 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 but we make eye contact. As soon as I walk in, in fact, she was already looking at me, and I, I, I caught her eye. And, and her look was interesting. Um, it was a look. And she was looking at me. And, uh, and it was weird. It was kind of weird. I was like, you know, so you can't smile and wait, wait. You know, like, uh, I guess I still got it, you know. Okay, now, about two minutes later, I look back and she's still staring at me. And, about another, and then, then you're aware, like, this person's staring at me. And you know what that is? It's like you have this compulsive desire to keep on looking back. You know? So I fight it, I fight it, but once in a while I just kind of like look back. And she's, she's got this, it was a look that was kind of seductive, but kind of angry. I, I, I can't describe it, but it was just this, like, stare. You know? And this went on, we were there for about 15 minutes, just sort of checking it out, talking a little bit, and we decided to leave. At one point I went over to uh, my wife, and uh, I thought, you know, maybe this poor young gal, you know, I don't want to break her heart, but I got to let her know that I'm not available. So I, I went over to my wife, put my arm around my wife, and, and you know, I, I'm really processing this all wrong. She's probably looking at my scar or something like, oh my gosh. But uh, I put my arm around my wife, you know, and gave her a kiss just to let the, you know, the gal know that, you know, don't think about that. And uh, but while I'm hugging my wife, I look over there, and there she is with that look. It's like, man, get off it. So we decided to leave, and I go out the door. And I, I go out the door, I look back, and she's still staring at me. So I step out the door, and I look back again, and she's still staring. At one point, I just kind of went like, what, what? You know, what's the deal here? I, I wish I would have went up and asked her what was going on. Okay, now, as we're uh, walking away from this pub and talking about it, I, I described this kind of, you know, this gal was, was really eyeing me, and uh, I don't know what was up with that, you know? Maybe I, maybe I just, you know, I, maybe she just couldn't take her eyes off me. Winky Prattney said, I don't think that's it. <laughs> that was after he pulled himself off the ground <laughs> laughing. But he knows this area very well. This is Sussex, England. And uh, there is a, a, apparently a very strong witches' guild there that goes back thousands of years. And they're all over the place. And, um, and he says, you know what? They can smell a Christian a mile away. And they give the evil eye. I guess we get that expression from it. There's like a cursed lie, that they, an eye that they give. And see, now I, I can't get any pride for, for being hot, but I can't get pride for being the one Christian she spotted. <laughs> one way. One way or another, my flesh is going to get a dime out of this deal, okay? So, and, you know, and so, so what was going on there apparently is that, I don't know this, who knows, maybe she's doing a game with her friend, like, let's, let's really freak this guy out, who knows. But, uh, um, uh, you know, it, it seems like she was kind of just zeroing in and doing something in the spiritual realm towards me. Now, here's the thing, discernment, which I lacked that night, <laughs> would, would, would say, you know, there's something weird going on here. Actually, I did know that something weird was going on. I you couldn't ignore that. Something weird is going on here. Maybe if I would have had a little more spiritual discernment and wasn't kind of freaked out by 
why she's looking at me. I would have sensed something in the spiritual realm. I don't know. But discernment says, you know what? This and this are different. Uh, this is not a normal look. This is not what people normally do. What's she doing here? There's something creepy going on here. I dig kind of goosebumps at one point. Like, this is kind of freaking me out. That's discernment. Discernment might, in the light of further information, say, possibly she was a witch. Possibly she was putting a curse on me. So discernment would say, you know what? I, I maybe need to pray right now and, and get whatever junk she was putting on me off of me and, and, and do some warfare here. That's all discernment. That's all good. That's the kind of thing we need to be maturing in. Judgment would go beyond that. And judgment would now develop a hostility towards her. How dare her, that witch, uh, that, that irredeemably evil person. She's evil to the core. I know her heart and yada, yada, yada. And now my animosity would not be towards the devil, but it would be towards her. But you see, she's in bondage to the enemy, and my job is to love her out of that if the Lord opens up those kind of doors. And, and so judgment draws conclusions about the person themselves. But you see, I don't know her heart. I don't know her past. I don't know her upbringing. What I do know is that she's a precious human being. And uh, she's created in the image of God. And Jesus paid an infinite price for her, which is why I know that she's got infinite value before God. And she's in, perhaps in bondage to this diabolical power. And, uh, and, I want, and now I'm moved with compassion because I want her to be freed from that. Judgment and discernment are two radically different things. We need to grow in our maturity on discernment. But at the same time, we need to grow in our maturity in, our, in terms of being opposed to judgment. To very, there's a good way to separate and a bad way to separate. Separate things, but never separate people. Here's a principle I want to share with you. It is always appropriate to love in every context you're in, with every person you're talking about. I don't care what they look like. I don't care what their background. I don't care what your situation. It's always appropriate to ascribe unsurpassable worth to them. And it's always appropriate to communicate that to them in whatever way is fitting for that situation. That's always appropriate. It's conversely never appropriate to judge, to draw conclusions about them that are negative, to play like you're God, and to act like you know what you don't know. That is God's job. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So it's never appropriate to judge. But it is sometimes appropriate to express discernment. To, to harbor discernment, to, to chew on it, and then to express it sometimes. Now, when is it appropriate to do this, and when is it not appropriate to do this? And a whole lot hangs on this question. We need to follow the Spirit of God here. God needs to, lie to, uh, to, to, to lead us, and there's going to be some exceptions to this. But here's a principle I want to throw out in terms of when we're supposed to and not supposed to express discernment. The principle is this. If you don't have a relationship with a person... And if a person hasn't invited you in on their lives, and if you don't intend to act on their behalf with your discernment for their benefit, if one of those three things are not true, then all the other things being equal, you have no need or responsibility to express your discernment towards them. Uh, you don't even need to harbor the discernment. You just let it go. And now you just bless them. And you ascribe unsurpassable worth to them in your mind and in your thoughts in your words and in your deeds. Think about this. One of the things we teach in TNT is that there is a purpose for every behavior that we do. Every behavior we do has a purpose for it, whether we know it or not. What is the purpose of holding on to a discernment that you're not going to act on, but you're not going to let go? You just hold an opinion. You walk around with an opinion in your mind. What's the purpose of that? I don't like this. I like that. I, you have a person in mind and, and you have an opinion there and you think about it and you chew on it. What is the purpose? What, what function is it serving in your life? You're not going to help them with it and you're not letting it go. What function does it serve? 
And I submit to you that if, you, if you're introspective about the matter, you'll see that the purpose it serves is a flesh one. You're feeding off of it. You're judging them. You're, 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 you're distinguishing yourself from them and feeling righteous about it. And you're developing an anger towards them. It's not appropriate. Let it go. The only time it's appropriate to harbor and then express discernment is when you're in relationship with a person who's invited you in in their life and there's something you're going to do with it. So what happens is when we hold on to discernment in our mind for too long and don't do anything with it, it becomes judgment. And when it becomes judgment in our mind, we, it colors the way we look at people and almost always it gets expressed in our mouth. We gossip with it. So now you've compounded your sin. Not only are you judgmental, now you're a gossiper. And gossip's like the, the second most frequently mentioned sin in the New Testament. This is serious stuff we're talking about. The, there's a time and a context to harbor and express discernment, separating things. And that context is when we're in a relationship with a person who's invited us in on their life, and, there, and there's something helpful that can come by our sharing it. In the early church, this is so crucial. In the early church, Christianity was founded on these kind of relationships. It says this in Acts chapter 2, that after 3,000 people were saved on the day of Pentecost, they met uh, in the temple court and they met in each other's houses daily. They broke bread together. They fellowshiped together. Um, they lived life together. We know, we know from a letter that was sent from a man named Pliny to his superior, Hadrian, in the end of the first century or the early second century. Uh, he was the governor who had captured all these Christians and it was illegal at the time and he didn't know what to do with them. He was going to just execute them because they wouldn't bow to the emperor. And uh, he, asked, he, he, he mentions in his letter this. He says these Christians, it, it's, it's kind of strange. They do a lot of good deeds and they, they love a lot of people, but they meet every morning in their houses together. Groups of 10 or 20 or 30, they meet in house churches. And we know the early church did that. They didn't have big churches like this. They met in house churches. And uh, uh, they, they, there they'd, they'd take communion. They'd sing hymns, he said, to Jesus as though he were God. Uh, they would pray for one another. They'd help one another. Christianity was lived in close-knit communities, in house churches. They got together in large groups in the temple, but the basic unit was house churches. Now, here's the thing. All of the one-anothers of the New Testament, or almost all the one-anothers of the New Testament, make perfect sense in those kind of contexts. But they don't make good sense outside of those contexts. Speak the truth to one another in love. Well, you've got to know that when Paul writes that, what he has in mind are Christians who are going to be in these house churches, meeting every day, breaking bread together, living life together, you know, and they've invited each other in on each other's lives. So he says, speak the truth to one another, and he's presupposing that context. If a stranger comes up to me and tells me what they think is true, it doesn't mean much to me. Who are you? But if someone who knows me and is in relationship with me comes up and speaks the truth, they've got some credibility there. Let's say that someone comes up and says, you know, uh, a stranger comes up and says, I think you should discipline your daughter Alicia more. Alicia's here, and I thought I'd, you know, rag on her because she's got all her friends here. Uh, you know, you ought to discipline your, your daughter Alicia more. And immediately I'm thinking, well, who put you, king of the universe, in parenting? And what do you know about me? And what do you know about my daughter? What do you know about my history? You don't know diddly squat, so you really don't know what you're talking about. No, do you? But thanks for sharing your opinion. See, it just doesn't... But if a person who's in relationship with me, who's, who's you know, been there and, it's, and see, knows Alicia, knows me, knows the dynamics, if they say, you know what, I think right now you need to crack down on Alicia, now it has the wisdom of love to it. See, they're on the inside. Plus, I trust them. I know them. They're not trying to get life from being better than me. They, they are saying it for my benefit, and now it has some applicability, you see? 
I'll tell you this, and this has nothing to do with Alicia because Alicia's a little angel, but, 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 but this is a true thing. There are, there are some kids that are born with little angel wings and they just fly through the universe and parenting them is the joy of, of life. And then there are kids who are differently gifted who don't have angel wings. <laughs> and some of these kids, I mean, this isn't about Alicia, uh, although I, I could go with it just to make her life miserable, but... Uh, See, there are kids who just, maybe they have an oppositional defiant disorder. Sometimes they're just hyperactive. You know, maybe they're this or maybe they're that. And raising ki- those kind of kids is very, very different than raising different kinds of kids. But what happens is the parents who raise the angel kids look at the parents who are dealing with these non-angelic kids and they start judging them. Well, you know what I think? Well, you know, if you just do what I did. Okay, some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Well, it's, tr- it's totally different. You can't apply the same standards to those two kinds of kids. If you held these kids uh, up to the same standards you hold the angel kids up, you'd be shooting at them all the time. You'd, you'd never have a peaceful moment. You've got to let a lot of things slide, you know? Uh, so it, it, you have to be on the inside of the situation to know what's going on. The Bible says confess your sins to one another. Now think about the context in which that's appropriate. If I'm walking out of here and some stranger comes up, well, maybe that's not a good analogy. If I'm on the street and some stranger comes up, because again, I'm a pastor, so maybe someone would do this to me, but, but if I'm on the street, the person just comes up and says, you know what, last night I watched a filthy movie. And your name was... What? Thanks for sharing. Uh, you know, uh, repent. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's weird. It's like, what am I supposed to do with this? You see, you don't go around barfing all your stuff up to everybody. It's just not, you know, hi, my name is Greg. But there needs to be a context in which you can do that. We all need barf groups, all right? Uh, Groups that we trust, that that way we can confess sin to one another. But that means they're in on our life. We know that they're going to be safe. We can, you know, and so a person can say, you know what, I really struggle with, 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 with filthy movies, and so I, I, I need you to watch my back and help me here and, and walk with me here, and I will confess to you when I fall, and, 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 and you won't be judging me, but you will be helping me. You see, the context is all important. So also when Paul says, you know what, don't try to discern those outside the church. You know, that's not your job. But inside the church, inside your, your group of 10, 20, 30 maybe, now exercise krenao. Uh, exercise discernment. Help each other out here. What he's talking about is, is, is in, in 1 Corinthians 5 is uh, that uh, some guy has been sleeping with his stepmother and it, it, a leader of a small group and the group is like thinking that's okay. So Paul the pastor has to say, you know, hello you guys. Uh, you're supposed to be watching out for one another here. In that sense, this is not a good thing that's going on here. And so he has to confront them. But see, what happens is this. Most American Christians don't have those kind of relationships. Most American Christians are are individuals. They're lone rangers. For most American Christians, we think the whole idea of church is about going to a large group where we don't know hardly anybody, getting a message, singing a song, and then going home. And so when we read those passages about judge one another uh, and, and confront one another, speak truth to one another, since we don't have the first century context, we think it applies to everybody. And then some Christians think it's their job to go on the street corner and start speaking the truth to people they don't know anything about and, and, and exercising judgment on people they don't know anything about. And now we're doing the very thing that Jesus told us not to do. And that's how the church gets that reputation that it's got. There's a context for everything. In the context for discernment in small groups, I'll close with these two quick conclusions. Number one, what it shows is this. We all need to be walking out the Christian life with others. Christianity is meant to be in relationship. 
It's meant to be live in, in a context where you've invited other people in on your life and you're in on their life. All right? We are to, we're all commissioned to make disciples. And that doesn't just mean winning new converts. It means ongoing throughout our life. I help disciple you and you help disciple me. We make disciples. It, it's, it, it's, it's the essence of the Christian walk in relationship to one another. We all need that. We have, we have uh, really been trying different things to get people plugged into this. Kevin Johnson's done a wonderful job, our community pastor. We've got around 120 small groups that are going now. But what we really need, I'm just going to throw this out there and ask the Holy Spirit to let it land. We need people who will lead these. Uh, we find that without a leader, the group kind of just flounders and, and perishes. Uh, but would you consider leading a small group? Uh, and, and if you don't have to have any experience in that, you don't have to be a pastor, you don't have to have an MDF, you don't have to have anything, we will do all the training, and it's not very hard. It just means being available. But to, to get more people plugged in to, uh, to house churches where we begin to live life together, it's so crucial that we have a context where we can and should exercise loving discernment to one another. We need those kind of relationships. The second point, however, is this. Even if you're in such a small group and you have Christian friends like that, it still is the case that 99.99% of the people you're going to come in contact with in your life don't fit into that category. And therefore, your only job with respect to that 99.9% is to love them, is to ascribe to them unsurpassable worth with your mind, with your mouth, and with your deeds. You will discern things about them, but unless you are called and it's appropriate to act on it, discern it and let it go. Let it go. Don't, don't use any parking spaces with your opinions about people. You only have so many parking spaces to go around and most of, all of those should be filled with, oh, this analogy is really going to bite, with love cars. I, 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 oh, that's really lame. Lame! But don't, it pollutes your mind. With regard to most people, your one job is to ascribe unsurpassable worth to them and then to let go of other discernments. It's in relationship that we now, because you care about a person, you say, you know what, I think you're, there's a problem here. Can I, can I help you with that? And things of that sort. The reason I'm so intent on this is because it's so central to everything that the church is about. It is so incredibly, incredibly freeing when you get rid of the pollution in your brain all the needless opinions and judgments we hold about people. And when you can just let go of those, and there is, it's uncorking the uh, uh, old faithful. You know, it, it, there's a gusher. God's love begins to flow in you and flow through you. It is joyful. It is freeing. It is so cool to go to the state fair and you have that love. Just, every person you see, I'm in love, I'm in love with that person. I, I love that. Oh, I love you. You know, you don't tell them this, otherwise they'll lock you up. But <laughs> you have a love for them. Now, you may, you may say, boy, I would never wear that dress. Especially me. I always say that all the time. I would never wear that dress. <laughs> but you don't like their dress, but, but you love them. And maybe they need a shower more, but you love them. And, and maybe there's this about them and that. And you notice that. But then you let it go. What purpose is there to hang on to that? And you just love them. And that is the essence of what we're, what we're to be about. And it can be big things. It can be small things. Uh, lending your, your lawnmower to your neighbor or mowing their lawn or helping them shovel the driveway or opening a door for a person or giving a kind word or helping somebody with their groceries. Or If, if, this, if the commitment of your heart is to, at all times, in all places, with all people, in all circumstances, to ascribe unsurpassable worth, God will lead you. He'll show you ways to do it. And every time you do that, 
It is expanding the kingdom of God. And that, in a nutshell, is all that we are supposed to be about. Well, let's just stand. We're going to close in prayer. Amen. And uh, can I ask the prayer team to come forward here? It may be that you're stuck in a judgment. Uh, it may be that uh, you have got, you're locked in on somebody. And God wants you free of that. God wants you free of that. Uh, and so I invite you to come forward and, and just pray with the folks who are up here, or you can pray on your own, uh, and, uh, and just release that. Uh, if you're here this morning and you're not, you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ. You've never entered into a personal relationship with Him, and you'd like to find out more about that, or maybe you're ready to actually do that, I want to invite you to come forward. We have a table over here, and a person will answer whatever questions you have and uh, uh, lead you in that prayer if that's what you want to do. Father, our prayer, God, is that you free us from the diabolical tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We eat of it so instinctively. It's like the nose on our face, Lord. We don't even notice it, but it cuts to the core of what you have called us to be and what you've called us to do. Free us from it, Lord. Pour out your love in us and through us, Lord God. We need a baptism of your love, Lord God. We, we, we need, Lord God, freedom from the pollution in our mind, Father. Uh, we pray, God, that you would be forming your heart in us. Give us your eyes for people, Lord. Give us your heart for people, Lord God. Uh, fill us with just that, 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 that uh, commitment to ascribe unsurpassable worth to all the people for whom you have died, and that is everybody. Make us, Lord God. We want to, we, we, we want to stop uh, exuding a spirit of Phariseeism and start exuding a spirit of Jesus Christ. Make us magnetic to tax collectors and prostitutes, Father. Give us an outrageous love for them. Help us to not fear the scorn of religious people who will be scandalized by this. Help us, Lord God, just to follow you. As we go out of here with a commitment to live out your outrageous love to us, on us, and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said one last time. Amen. Amen. The altar is open. We love you guys. Have a loving week.